Mosey Nation, I was interviewed by Greg Hickman on his podcast related specifically to some questions that he had and his audience had of agency owners around how to use $100 million offers, the framework within the book on their businesses as agency owners, and then also on their clients' businesses as small business owners, because they're also getting leads for their small businesses. And so this was a two-sided discussion, both the B2B side and then also B2C side of how to use offers in a compelling way to increase prices, get more clicks, get more people to say yes, and get them to do it to things that they can't say no to, and how to chunk through a productized service in a way that makes a business more scalable and more profitable. And so there's really, really in-depth tactical stuff in this interview, and I think you guys hopefully will like it as much as I enjoyed making it for you. And this is part one of our two-part podcast. Enjoy. If I deliver $10,000 of value and I charge $10,000, I will have a satisfied customer, but there will not be any surplus. They won't tell their friends about it. They had fair exchange, right? If I charge uh, $10,000 for $100,000 in value, they'll tell everybody they're not. Welcome to the game where we talk about how to get more customers, how to make more per customer, and how to keep them longer, and the many failures and lessons we have learned along the way. I hope you enjoy and subscribe. Everybody, Alex Armozzi in the flesh joining us today. So it was kind of interesting. I posted in the group, you know, who would be interested. And I was like, I wonder like how many of my people know who you are. And I was like, there's going to be some definitely. And it was like the most engaged thread <laughs> in our group. Like I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. So the message is spreading my friend, but guys, if you haven't gotten Alex's new book, 100 million offers, uh, check it out. It's on Amazon for, I think still 99 cents on audible. And he has a free course at acquisition.com forward slash training, I believe, where he takes you through that content. So definitely check it out. We're going to be talking about that and a lot more today. So Alex, here's how I want to start this. So this group, right? This group is people that I would kind of consider micro agency owners. They're like, they're more than freelancers. They've got a little bit of traction, probably like lean and mean team, done for you services. Uh, some of them are trying to escape that altogether, add on consulting, move into training. Some are still rocking the, the quote unquote traditional agency model. And you've said in multiple of your interviews, but have never gone deeper on it. I just don't like the agency model. <laughs> so I'd love to understand how you unpack that a little bit. Um, Cause I feel like I know where you're going to take it. And I think I agree, but I've never heard you take that deeper beyond. I just don't really like the agency model. So can you explain what you mean by that? I think the agency model, as most people practice, it is not a sellable business. You know what I mean? I think that's, that's the, like, if I were to say like one consolidated statement, that is it. Um, underneath of that, there's tons of sub buckets, but that's the, that's the overarching piece. Underneath of that, I would say, I don't like like pure service-based businesses in general, because if you were to plot things on a high value on one thing, and then how teachable a skill is on the other, most things that are really teachable are not valuable. Things that are very valuable tend to not be teachable. Um, and so the more you invest in someone, the more flight risk you you suffer from in a service in a purely service-based business. And this is why most franchises that are purely service-based don't achieve nearly the scale that non-service-based franchises do. So if you look at like the biggest franchises out there, if you look at from a trend standpoint, they're almost all food-based because mm. A Starbucks coffee is going to taste like a Starbucks coffee because the machine is going to like the beans are going to taste the same as long as the, the temperature is right and they have the same amount of water, right? Your sandwich is more or less going to be the same because the same ingredients, right? But in the service business, for example, uh, let's say you were went to a massage parlor, it's very very difficult to standardize a really good masseuse versus a really bad masseuse. Like they can go through the same training, but you might still have an entirely different outcome, right? And so what ends up happening is that that person builds a book of business within your business and then they walk from your business, and that happens with virtually any service based business, whether it's chiropractor trying to get chiropractors, gym owner trying to get trainers, like a uh, salon with hairstylists, it's all the same, their service. Right. And so, um, I don't 
like that component of it, right? Which is why I tend to lean more towards, you know, to the, to the extent that we can trying to productize as many pieces of the service as we can, because then people are loyal to the product and the brand that's associated with it rather than the individual who's uh, providing it. And then also when you productize it, you can also break it into individual chunks and then you can divide out the work between people so that it's not one person doing end to end on the thing, right? And so then they're, they're more loyal again to the outcome or the product rather than to the person. So that's one. Number two is most people who practice agencies tend to be generalists, which is, you know, I talk about in the book why I think that's a terrible idea. But like, if you're going to be a generalist, you're competing against like Ogilvy. You know what I mean? You're competing against <laughs> like the biggest people out there. And, and I, you absolutely can win in the general market. So despite what I said in the book in terms of like the riches and the niches, it is absolutely possible. It's just much harder, right? Like right now I can talk as a business generalist, but because of the track record that I have, mm-hmm. right? And so what happens is I think a lot of people try and get in as a business generalist, but they have no experience and they have no credibility. Mm. And that's really the issue, right? So like, if you want to compete at general business coaching, for example, not that I have a business coaching company, but at least a business advice company that I give away for free, right? (laughs) Then you have to compete with me. And it's going to be harder if you don't have context or experience across multiple industries to have more relevant experience. And so that's, that's the reason, like the niching isn't because niching is special. It's just because it's easier to get really good at one thing that is to be really good at a lot of things. And I think that's like, that's the subtext for why niching makes more sense, right? And then on top of that, you can far more easily standardize the product offering so that you have less variability, which then increases or decreases the operational drag and increases your margins. Um, It also allows you to price differently so that you can compete in a smaller marketplace and own candidly a more valuable outcome, right? Because like if, you know, Ogilvy isn't going to provide that, well, first off, they wouldn't work with a local real estate agent, but if they were going to work with a local real estate agent, they wouldn't be able to provide the same value as somebody who only does real estate agents. And not only that, only does real estate agents who only sell commercial homes in the one to $5 million range. Because if you just did that, then you know exactly what the sales process would look like. You know exactly where the leads should get. You know what they should get worked on. You know what the price per deal is. You can price appropriately. And all of that's going to be optimized. And in terms of productizing what you're going to deliver, again, your team is going to know who the avatar is, how you're going to help them in every aspect of that process, right? Compared to we market stuff which is really, really hard. It's all custom and it's hard to be competitive, right? Because then you're going to get priced just like everyone else in the marketplace, which is really difficult uh, to differentiate. And as marketers, we should know what that is. So it would make sense to at least start with ourselves. You mentioned the word productize a bunch of times, and it's a term that we use a lot. And at least in our programs, a lot of times what we're helping our clients do is take that, that specialty and start packaging up so that they are not pure service-based. But you touched on something that I haven't really or at least worded it in a way where you talked about the, the chunking of the pieces then into delegating that. Can you, can you expand on that and maybe even touch on your experience from the early stages of gym launch or maybe any other business that you you've seen do this? So I think the first thing that needs to happen is you have to have a clear customer journey. And so most people don't even have a customer journey. They have a rough idea of what has to happen, but they haven't actually like written it down. So it's like, right. well, the first step is for us as a company to have a shared understanding. Like you may think in your own head that you have a shared understanding, but you probably don't, right? Because if I were to ask your frontline employees, what does it look like? They probably will mess something up and you will be horrified mm. by what they say the client journey is. Because you'll be like, oh my God, that's not what our client journey is. And it's like, and you wonder why clients aren't getting a good experience, right? And so it's like, first we have to agree upon this thing. Everyone's there. And it's like, okay, Now we have to slice up these things into pieces that will best suit the team, you know, for those specific, you know, roles. Right. And so you're going to probably have a different person who does onboarding than somebody who does client, you know, account management versus somebody who does the creative, like all of those are different roles that all might be necessary in the process that you create. Now, what I just described as a a generalist approach, which would probably not be the right way to do it is like, how can we peel off the pieces that are the highest margin that we're the best at? 
Because at the end of the day, like everything comes down to like, where do we provide the most value and who do we provide that value to? And like, if we can answer those questions, then business gets a lot easier. It's like, well, this is for everybody who's a generalist who needs to make the transition. Like the way that I would do this and approach this is I would look at my entire client base, historical and actual, and say, which of these clients were the best to deal with? Which of these accounts were the least trouble? And which of these did we make the most money on? Right. And so if you plot those, then you'll start to see that there's a clump, right? And there's probably going to be somewhere you made a lot of revenue, but not a lot of profit. You have some guys who are a lot, again, a lot of revenue, but they're a ton of work. But there's going to be a sweet spot where you have lots of profit, not a lot of work, high client satisfaction. And it might be like, we're really good at this one aspect or these two aspects are really good that we're really good at. And we serve this type of business. And it could either be niched in terms of there's levels to niching, right? You could just say local businesses or one level below that it could be service-based local businesses, or it could be, you know what I'm saying here? Like you can, you can, yeah. you can try to think slice and dice that group until you really can define it well, where it's like, it might be, it might be male founder tech companies, whatever, right? Because uh, I'm sure your audience is really, you know, varied in terms of who they serve. And so you might find out like tech companies have the budget and are really willing to spend the money and don't have a lot of feedback on creative. And they're just like, yeah, this is good. We needed a, a logo and that's that, right? And then you can just, that's what you focus on. Because the thing is, is like, it also becomes, you know, for entrepreneurs, the biggest asset that we have in our net worth is going to be our business. And that means that the business in order for it to be valuable, it has to be sellable. And so a great book on this is John Werlow's book, Built to Sell. I think it's a really good story if you've read that. Yep. Um, that kind of depicts the issue that I think the actual examples in agency. So it's probably. Yeah, it's like a, they do logos. Yeah. It's really suitable for your audience. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that just tends to be the, the kind of the recurring issues. They don't think like business owners because they're still so fully integrated in the business. And so it's like in terms of sequence, it's like we have to get our offer right. Then we have to get our customer journey right. And we have to slice that up so that other people can do it so that now we're fully removed from the delivery. Then we're still probably selling, depending on the size of the people that you're dealing with, but probably a lot of them are still heavily involved in the sales and acquisition. And so then it's how do we create, you know, a pipeline uh, of new business? And that can be whatever way you want. You know, you can go paid ads, you can go earn media, you can go own media, you can do manual outbound, you can do affiliates, you can do word of mouth referrals if you have a strong, a strong back in there. Any of those ways you could do, but you have to pick one. And so for anyone who's under a million dollars, and you've heard my content before, but I'll just repeat it again. It's one product, one avatar, and one channel. And that is how you get from zero to a million. That's it. And what most people are doing is lots of products to lots of avatars on multiple channels and, yeah, so, yeah. and failing at all of them miserably and somehow wondering why, right? It's because like you can barely do one thing. How are you expecting to do to serve lots of different? It just doesn't make any sense. It's way and too hard. And when you say the channel, just to be specific of the ones that you kind of rifled off, like one committing to, to manual outbound would be an example. Or like if you're going to do paid media, does that mean like paid media only on Facebook? Or does that mean just paid media across all the channels. Pay media is a, is a single bucket, right? And then inside of that, there's obviously you could go pre-roll YouTube ads. You could do Facebook, you do Instagram, you could do whatever, right? Google ads, you could Craigslist ads. There's a lot of ads you could run. But what I have found in scaling our companies on paid media, um, and then obviously, you know, as you know, with our newer stuff, we're, we're more focused on the other three. It's easier to go from Facebook to adding YouTube than it is to go from Facebook to cold calling. So it's much easier to just add or remove a step in the friction of like having a call funnel from a different source because you usually just have to get the friction right. That's really the only variable with the different traffic sources. Whereas with manual app out, it's like you literally are starting from scratch. And so whatever one you feel like you are best suited for, I would start there. I will say though, that from a sellability, a company that is far more on the affiliates, manual app out and word of mouth are going to be much more sellable entities than paid advertising, earned media and owned. 
Real quick, guys, you guys already know that I don't run any ads on this and I don't sell anything. And so the only ask that I can ever have of you guys is that you help me spread the word so we can help more entrepreneurs make more money, feed their families, make better products, and have better experiences for their employees and customers. And the only way we do that is if you can rate and review and share this podcast. So the single thing that I ask you to do is you can just leave a review. It'll take you 10 seconds or one type of the thumb. It would mean the absolute world to me. And more importantly, it may change the world for someone else. You said that during dinner, you you made a comment. You know, I was fortunate enough to have dinner with you and Layla um, like a month ago now. And you made the comment of, you know, like the next channel that someone like myself could really focus on, even though it'll take longer to get dialed in is the manual outbound, because then you don't have to. And I think the words were, you don't have to be a dancing bear. <laughs> is, is that kind of why you think those three are more relevant? First, the sellability? Yeah, if you look at the biggest companies in the world, almost all of them have the foundation of the latter three, not the former three. It's all about like referrals being the biggest because it's the one that is quadratic in nature, right? Um, which is, you know, candidly, the reason most businesses don't make money or a lot of money is because they don't actually provide that much value. There's not a lot of what we would call customer surplus. So I'll give you an example of what customer surplus is. So if, if I deliver $10,000 of value and I charge $10,000, I will have a satisfied customer, but there will not be any surplus. They won't tell their friends about it. They had fair exchange, right? If I charge uh, $10,000 for $100,000 in value, they'll tell everybody they're not, right? And so there's a seesaw of how much, how much virality you want uh, in the product you have. Now, if you look at, again, the biggest companies in the world, they would prefer to have zero cost of acquisition, have shitloads of virality, and then deal with monetization later. That is what most, now a lot of them are funded, so they don't have to deal with this. So there is a sweet spot there, right? Like, and you know, I, I sit in an interesting position because a lot of people are trying to look at what I'm doing with acquisition.com and they're like, what's the play? The real play is I don't need the money. Right? <laughs> like, so that's the magic, right? So I have a huge customer per surplus. The reason the book sells a thousand copies a day right now with no paid ads is because there's a big surplus, right? And so maybe if I, like, I had a bunch of people who read the, the early copies before I, before I launched it, they're like, dude, you should charge a hundred dollars, charge $500 to the book or whatever. And I'm like, I probably could have, but I would so much rather trade $99 to have your goodwill. That's far more valuable to me over the long haul, right? And the reality is that if I charge 99 cents, um, which is basically nothing because Jeffy B takes, takes 65 of the, the 99, um, <laughs> then uh, the likelihood that I get probably 20 times the people or 100 times the people who read the book um, is significantly higher. And that's where I'm going to, you know, I would prefer to have 100 people who know about the stuff and, and get value than have one person who gets $500 done. Right. Totally. So you made a comment earlier about the, like, if I charge 10,000 and you only make 10,000, like you're probably not going to go tell anybody about it. So in the book, you talk about how to basically double your rates, raise your rates without having to actually change anything about the offer. And I want you to talk a little bit about that, but then kind of specifically around that, like the evolution to get to that, right? Because I know a lot of people in, in this group that are watching this, A, they're, uh, they're definitely not charging enough. They know they're not charging enough, but some of those other things you talked about have been preventing them from solving a specific outcome that would even allow them to get to a multiple, you know, return. So like all these things start stacking on top of each other, but say someone's specialized, they're doing something specific and they're still not charging enough. Can you talk to the path to raising your rates? So the problem is the price is the, is the, is the symptom, not the cause, right? So the cause is that people are not providing sufficient value. And so the whole book details how to break down every problem that your customer is dealing with, a specific customer, and then how to systematically solve each of those problems so that you can provide more value 
Once you have provided significantly more value, then you can raise your prices. And then as a result of raising your prices, the price itself also confers more value to the product itself, which is kind of an interesting you know, dynamic in and of itself. And so of late, what I said didn't seem contradictory to what I'm saying right now. It's like, I raised my prices at Gym Watch by a lot and I was way ahead of the market, but I also added $250,000 of top line on average. And so the reality is that the people that I was competing against were charging between 500 and 5,000 for adding between 500 and $5,000 to the business, right? I was adding $250,000 and I charged 40. So I was still way above them, but I was like double or triple or 10 times way above them in terms of the value that was being provided. And that you could verify on the fact that like, the business exploded, right? And that's that's the you know the reasoning behind it, which is why we didn't have to spend a ton in advertising. Like the first year in business, we spent we spent a million dollars in advertising. We did twenty eight million. You get so much more return by having some level of customer surplus. I mean, sequentially though, like you had gone and personally flown around the country and did this one on one launching these gyms. So you obviously had that experience to kind of I think probably know the value discrepancy. And so what I'm hearing correctly is some of you listening might have done this enough times and already have seen the type of returns you can get, thus probably instantaneously can raise your rates. But some of you might have to earn it by actually going above and beyond getting, figuring out what that is and sequentially raising rates as you start getting those returns. Does that sound accurate? Yes. So let me tell you two different ways of getting that. All right. The first is that you massively fix what you're doing and provide 20 times the value and charge five times the price that you currently are, right? And so if you do that, then you'll get both elements. You'll have a massive increase in value and you'll be able to provide that because you're at five times higher prices. So you'll have extra cash flow to be able to fulfill all of these things that you can do. And oftentimes the value that we provide takes a one-time investment, um, but that you can yield, you know, returns over and over again. So for example, a book is a one-time investment, but then I continue to yield returns on that book over and over and over again. So it's like a lot of times we need to do more work on the onset than people end up doing. But I think I have a perfect example for this. That's actually, that might be perfectly relevant for this. So one of the, one of the, the, the companies that was using our software um, was an agency, right? And this agency owner, I, I would do one call a month with the agency owners just to like, you know, help them with business stuff. And every single month, same guy would get on and the same guy would, would bitch and moan about his customers. And he had niched down. He was only working with real estate agents. Um, and he was like, you know, the, they, they suck. They say they, that the leads are bad. No one works the leads. And it was the same conversation over and over and over and over again. And I was like, dude, stop your agency and go work the leads that you're getting. Go get your real estate license. Go work the leads. Go sell some houses. And then you'll be able to help them. And he didn't do it. And then finally he got so fed up that he did it. And then within a month, he sold like seven and a half million in houses. Right. And I was like, okay, have you learned something about, he's like, oh yeah, I, the, you know, what I was telling them to do it, like, there's a couple different like nuances about how you had to do that different. And so what happens is everyone just regurgitates generic advice and they've never done it. And because they've never done it, they don't have the nuances and then the devil's in the details. The money is in, is, is in the, is in the tiny differences, not the massive things. Right. And so because he actually did it, I was like, now you can have conviction when you talk to somebody on the phone, you're like, dude, I'm working these leads myself. Like I just sold two houses this week. Like it works. And imagine how different the sales conversation is, how different he feels about the pricing that he's going to charge. And now the product truly is better. And so believe it or not crazy, he's now making way more money mind-blowing. And so if you think about this for most people, is they start getting into business where they actually provide no value. 
they don't know how to provide value. They took a course and know how to run Facebook ads or, or, you know, they, they did some sort of design in the past and they're okay at it. Right. And the reason they don't make more money is because they're okay. They're not that good. And so we have to figure out a way to provide far more value to a very specific avatar, make their entire lives amazing because all the work that we did ahead of time, which oftentimes is one-time work, right? It's just no one's willing to wait six months or a year to have a business that's 10 times as big. But that means that you have to forego six months to 12 months, right? Of just learning the craft to a way deeper level. And here's what's crazy is that when you do that, imagine the story, marketers, put your marketer hat on, the story that he can now tell. He could say, dude, I get it. I was so tired of it. I worked the damn leads myself. I figured out every one of the systems and now I'm giving that to you. Now they're like, oh shit, no one else has done that, right? <laughs> and when I started the, the gym business, like I had six gyms of my own, still didn't feel secure enough to actually say that I could help gym owners. Then I started flying out because I wanted to make sure everyone was getting way more value than I was charging for it. And I did 33 turnarounds almost in, in, in like 18 months. And so I went to, we went to 33 different markets where we sat at the front desk, we sold the membership, we did everything right for them. We fronted the money. And so at that point, when I then say, Hey, I just launched 33 gyms personally over the last 18 months. I can tell you that this will work in your market. Hop on a call. It's a story that no one else can say. So it's not an angle. It's not a hook. It's just, it's true. Then, and here's the cool thing. As soon as I wanted to transition to the done with you model, I had 33 gyms that I was just like, Hey, remember that thing I did? They were like, yeah. I was like, do you want to want me to show you how I did it? And they're like, yeah, I had 33 high ticket clients immediately. Mm -hmm. Right. And then from there, client 34 who gets on the phone, I'm like, well, here, I'll just set you up with one of the gyms that, that, that's doing it right now. And they're like, dude, just buy it. I didn't need sales. It was just like, dude, just yeah. buy it. Buy it. So you, you alluded to value in that. And I think in consuming a lot of your content and then going to resource this, I haven't found many people that have actually defined it <laughs> yet. You, yet you have, uh, you know, we all think it's like, Oh, like go serve, you know, how to content, blah, 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 blah. But like you actually put together an equation for it. Can you, can you talk through that? Yeah. And, um, I think I dealt with the same issue you do, right. Which is like, you know, price is what you pay value is what you get. And so everyone can talk about price all day, but no one talks about value. They just say the word value over and over again. There you go. The value. Yeah. There's the equation. The way that I came to this was trying to think about two products that were the same and had different prices. And so I was like, why is this price higher than this? And so I just tried to think about it. Um, and those are the four buckets that I came with. I think you could probably break those into further smaller buckets, but those are kind of the big chunks that exist. And so for the audience, the fastest way that you can provide value is look what everyone else in the market is doing and do it in half the time. Simplest, simplest way. Like the thing that people value the most is their time. Right. And then effort and sacrifice is a nod to convenience, right? Effort is what you, what the prospect has to now begin doing that they don't want to do that they weren't doing before they started working with you. Sacrifice is what they have to stop doing that they want to do that they no longer get to do as a result of working with you. So it's just two sides of the same coin. So for example, you might be saying, ah, oh, like, I mean, I'm getting them all these leads, but now they're incurring the cost of now I have to pay someone to work leads. We have to, we have to follow up with all these people. I've got all these appointments. Like those are costs, right? And we have to look at every cost that's going, that they're going to incur as a result of doing business with us. And solutions create more problems. That's always how it is, right? And so if we can solve more of these problems that we're creating, then we can create more value in the end, right? But back to the time delay, the single thing that I focus on with virtually every business that you start working with on the acquisition.com side, the portfolio, is how can we decrease the time delay to money, right? And so I'll give you the easy example that you just gave with the marketing, right? If I, you know, you start working with a company and, you know, they swipe the card and they start working and say, hey, it's going to take 30 days, and then effort and sacrifice, you have to give me all this creative, you have to give me all access to all this stuff. You have, you have to, you have to, you have to, you have to. It's like, man, there's a lot of effort and sacrifice here. And especially if it's ongoing, every week you owe me this, 
every month you owe me this. We have to go on numbers every week. We're going to have this cadence, blah, 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 blah. Like it's all stuff that now I have to do that I wasn't doing before. Right. Yeah. And so what we try and do is like, imagine a different marketing agency that as soon as they swiped the card, right. Their phone rang with a qualified lead, right. Holy cow, different client experience, different impressions, different expectations that immediately get set and way more goodwill right off the bat. You just bought yourself three months of forgiveness from that first phone call in 30 seconds. Mm. You already know my perceived likelihood of achievement went through the roof. My buyer's remorse went way down, you know, and then the likelihood that I'm going to ascend to a higher level of service or buy the next thing triples, right? And so for us, we always try and engineer wins as fast as humanly possible. For us with a new client, we like to have it in the first seven days. So for us, the, the main KPI that we will drive as a company is what a client is going to make in the first, for us, it's 14, but like we try and get it in the first seven, but what we collect. And, and is this gym launch specifically? With all of them. Oh. All of them. We try and figure out how we, and, and if you're like, well, in my industry is different. Think creatively. Like, I don't, you know what I mean? Like I can't meet with everybody individually, but like, I promise you, we've made this work with every, even the long buying cycles, like the mortgages and the, and the, and the real estate guys. Yeah. Those are longer buying cycles, but there are still wins that you can still have emotionally that you can still deliver in the first seven to 14 days. Speed is so, is so valuable to people, especially business owners. If I sign a contract and nothing happens for 30 days, I think the company I'm dealing with is shit immediately. I automatically assume that, right? But if I see activity, I see predictors, I see activation points that are happening, then I know. So if for us, uh, I'll use the gym example. If we know that we're going to have to pull all these levers, right? We're going to change the, the number of people they're taking procession, their price points, how we're going to sell, change their lobby, all the different aspects of this we're going to have to change, right? Those are all heavy things. They're important, but they take yeah. time. Well, I'm going to just peel off the, the fastest, easiest win and deliver that in the first 14 days so that I gain the goodwill to then say, now you trust me enough to do these other things so it'll work and actually make even more money. It'll just take a little bit of time. But now they believe me and I've bought myself the goodwill. Hope you guys enjoyed the first part of this two-part series with Greg Hickman going deep on the 100 million offer framework from the book applied to real-world business, both B2B in the agency world and then also B2C in the small business environment with your local or you help local business owners. Stay tuned for part two, which is coming up in a few days.